Simon. Hello, Percy and Tom. Hello. Yeah, we are very, very pleased to have our first guest on the podcast. That is Tom Ashworth. Only uh, after only forty-eight minutes of setup, we found something that appears to be working. Let's hope it will continue to do so. So, hi, Tom. Who are you? Hello. Um, I am Tom Ashworth. I work on TweetDeck here at Twitter with these two lovely folks. Um, that is about the extent that I can think of to talk about myself. I am on Twitter. You can find me at, um, my handle is Funet, which is P-H-U-U-N-E-T. It's terrible, I know. And I'm on GitHub as well, P-H-U-U, working on a few things. Just out of curiosity, what the hell does that mean? Um, when, I was, when I was quite a bit younger, let's say maybe 14, I was trying to come up with four letters that would identify me on the internet because five letters is just too long for anyone to remember. So I And I came up with that and found that the .NET was available, which I thought was good <laughs> enough for um, and edgy enough for me. Uh, and then I, having bought all that, I then realized the Twitter handle wasn't available but decided that Foo.net was fine. So my website is Foo.net. It's just... I. I it's a horror show of a branding exercise, but <laughs> I think oh, I made well. a pretty similar mistake. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try and move towards my name over time. I think. Good luck. Good luck. I actually wanted to talk about two of your projects that you've been working on on the GitHub's. So one of them is a fetch engine. Can Can you tell us something about this? So the idea of fetch engine is to implement for the front end a thing that exists in many server-side languages, which is to say a network layer that does a lot of distributed system things right. So for example, it has retries built into it, that's like respecting 503s. Um, it can uh, do timeouts, um, it can do reporting on um, error codes that it's receiving, um, status codes, uh, it can detect network failure, all that kind of thing. Um, and the idea with fetch engine is to make that sort of make it pluggable, um, make the, the whole uh, HTTP request stack for the front end pluggable. So um, Fetch Engine gives you the ability to insert plugins into various stages of the request making cycle. And it's called Fetch Engine because it's based around the Fetch API, which is being specced at the moment. Um, that's the theory anyway. And the current state is we're sort of halfway through implementation. Um, um, just working on the sort of in Fetch internal bit, we've got most of the plugin stuff working. It seems like a lot of people seem to completely ignore the front-end bits, whether it's a mobile application or website, as part of a distributed system. I'm, I'm trying to understand why this is. Is this just because people um, historically think of websites as this static thing that is delivered to people and haven't really made the mental leap to thinking of it as some persistent piece of infrastructure? Or what happened I think there? Can we take a step back here and define how a front-end can be part of a distributed system? Because it doesn't click straight away. Um, can you guys explain a little bit for the sure. well, I mean, for me? So the, the, the TweetDeck makes something on the order of billions of API requests a day. Um, no matter how many billions it is, um, and it's more than one billions, that's but are we a lot are, are, we, are we talking about this in a different architecture uh, from the traditional client server? Well, no, I, I think all it's about is, is the scale. I mean, they can, people, people. if you have, a, say, a single-page application or anything that's making a lot of API requests, in the same way as, um, you know, a very highly trafficked server architecture, the, the client contributes 
um, a ton of traffic to any system. And the other thing about a client, um, the client is that it has a tendency to make requests that flow the whole way through the stack. So they will arrive at some, say in Twitter's case, some traffic handling point, um, be routed to a backend service, which then may go to two other backend services or more, which may then go to a database and come all the way back through. And so in some ways, a, a client request uniquely places load across the whole server-side stack. Um, and yet, a lot of times, the f you know, the f in JavaScript, we kind of forget to implement these things like um, respecting the back pressure that the API um, is exerting. So 429s in the case of Twitter's API, or 503s if, if we can't serve you a 429. Um, and also, you know, timing out and all things like that that we just kind of forget to do because it's not obvious to do them. If, you, if you're writing a manual XHR, um, then it's like not part of that API to do any of those things. And the same really with if you're using some, some network layer. So the idea is just to, to make, it the e make it easy to write good network layers in, in, on the client side, I suppose. That's the theory anyway. Okay. Um, because lo lo many, many clients requesting many things from an API um, can knock it over in exactly the same ways servers can knock each other over. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense now. Yeah. So, what was the the second project, Pascal? You wanted to ask about. Um, the second project is Integrator, which has I think recently landed in <coughs> TweetDeck as part of the testing infrastructure there. Mm -hmm. So, can you tell us a few things about this? Yeah, absolutely. So, Integrator is um, this strapline is fixture integration. Oh. Fixture integration testing. The theory is that the way we write integration tests now is not very good for um, large and complicated, particularly single page apps, but let's just say anything with a sort of non trivial API. I'm going to get some hate for saying that. I'm um, not API, interface, non trivial interface. And um, and so we've we had a big suite of integration tests for TweetDeck, and it just was so flaky um, and so hard to debug. Um, and so error prone that it just wasn't working and we ended up having to rip half those tests out. Um, so I started thinking about ways of better authoring integration tests and um, I had also been looking at QuickCheck um, and a few other um, testing libraries for various languages. And I just thought that if we could put those two things together with some other sort of good principles in programming like functional programming, um, then Possibly, we, it would be possible. Well, maybe it would be possible to come up with something that uh, made it easier uh, and faster and more fun to write integration tests for big applications. Because that's the other thing about integration tests: nobody likes to write them. Yeah, putting fun into integration tests seems to be a pretty massive goal. Mm. So the theory with Integrator is, um, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but essentially you break down as much as you want. The, okay, well, um, you break down the, app, the the sort of things that a user might be able to do in your application into things called actions. They have a few phases, um, but essentially it boils down to take the action and check that it worked, and then undo the action and check that the undoing worked. And the last two are pretty much optional. You don't really have to do that for um, for some actions. In fact, they're all optional, but um, the last two are less useful, I've found. Um, in doing so, and the thing that you run assertions against, you um, update a kind of a model. So your every action, that, uh, every action sort of receives this model, and then you return a model every time you do something. And the theory is that you take some action in the page um, and update your model to reflect what you expected to happen, and then run um, 
some assertions against the page and uh, the model. And um, the model is um, an immutable JS object. So the benefit that gives us is we can track the changes to the model over time and connect that directly to the actions that took place. And so to find a bug, we can say, here's the model as it changes through time. Here's the actions that took place. And here's where it broke this action's assertions. Um, there's a few other nice things about that because um, you can then do something like replay those actions in order um, and then stop the, the uh, integration test session and hand over to the developer so that they can debug. Um, all kinds of things like that. So um, plus there's the opportunity to do things like quick check style where you produce a minimal failing test case. So if you ran it, you know, did it, did 100 actions and it failed on the on the 100th then you could boil that down by rerunning subsets until you get to say a 10 step um, debugging procedure which would be which would be good there's a load load of other things in there but um, it's all on github if you would like to find out some more yeah fantastic does this require any work on the client side do you have to follow a, a certain architecture there or does it work for everything no it works for everything and and in fact integrator kind of is um, mostly about these actions and not so much about integration testing. So I am thinking about pulling the the runner and the um, uh, the sort of action library out because essentially what integrator is is, an, is a dependency graph, a little bit like Gulp, um, with some fa with some phased actions and some fixtures and a model, and that that sort of collectively um, makes for for quite a powerful and flexible. Um, way of doing things. You could, for example, probably write a build tool with Integrator. Um, I haven't done that, but the, what I've been calling that is the kind of the action graph. And if, and if you know, if you can imagine a build um, where you have to build some CSS and compile some JavaScript and then concatenate them and minify them, that is precisely a um, a sort of graph of dependent actions, as I said, like Gulp. And Integrator would be would be suitable for um, for that, plus it has the the added benefit that it can output a diagram of your graph. It can um, uh, uh, like let you debug your graph halfway through execution and all things like that. So, um, although I haven't explored that, I think it may have applications outside of integration testing as well as within integration testing. Are you are you guys the only ones using this at the moment? Yeah, as far as as far as I know, I haven't really talked about it that much or publicized it. It's we're starting to use it in TweetDeck. We have a suite of like a, a very small suite right now, but the idea is to build that up and replace yeah. the existing suite, and that'll probably teach us some things about the framework and how we want to use it and how it should be used and what its problems are. And so, hopefully, before anyone else starts to use it, um, we will have found some of the issues. But it would be helpful to have other people yeah. doing that at the same time. So and this is um, open source can be found. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, absolutely. It it should work. Um yeah, it should be usable straight off the bat. Um it's particularly good if you have like a browser stack account um because it um will work straight away with browser stack. Um and uh and it, particularly if you want to test in multiple browsers it's quite good at doing that as well. So yeah. have you designed it so it can be plugged into a different stack of browser your own kind of stack yes okay. so currently it only has one well the, the the particular thing that you might want to change is the driver um for web for web driver and so it uses leadfoot by default but that um although there are no other implementations at the moment that's like i, I there's some code there that means that it could be changed if you needed to and it would just be a new file new adapter cool. um not too difficult so yeah sounds very interesting i saw a demo of it and yeah it was quite impressive
Uh, yeah, super interesting. And this brings us to our next next topic fairly well, which is just the general discussion about web versus native, because both those problems also exist on native apps, whether it's Android or iOS, yeah. which Ramon and I here <laughs> kind of represent. So both the distributed systems part of, of the networking stack as well as integration tests are incredibly difficult to get right on mobile apps. But we wanted to broaden the discussion there a bit and see what we can con contribute without going um, too much on a high level, because a lot of people talk about whether the web will survive if it's actually a native versus web fight at the moment. I don't really think that's super interesting for us right now, because there are some graphs that show the, the time spent on the web isn't actually declining. It's just that the consumption patterns vary, and you probably have to think about which particular particular app you want to um, build on what platform, but I think both will remain viable app platforms for the foreseeable future. But yeah, I guess I guess the question, the starting question is whether the web is a viable development platform for mobile. Is it something that are people still pursuing that um, that kind of goal? Of, as I, well, I think definitely people are. I think yeah. there are definitely people working. I mean, I know I know of some frameworks and things that that are designed to help you out and use web technology to build. Um, but what what is it? What's the the target platform? Is it things like Firefox OS or like the failed web OS? Because do you think people have learned from those kind of those two failed experiments, as hmm. I, I like to call them, um, or are people still trying to? target developing for Android and iOS, but uh, on top of a um, web framework, or what's the, what's the status at the moment? I, so I, I mean, I'm not a mobile developer, so I'm not up to date on the kind of latest in what people are doing with, with mobile web, particularly in the kind of creating an app space. When I have done this kind of thing in the past, I have found um, that, as I think lots of people do, that performance is always an issue, um, and at least historically, although things have, have changed, thankfully, in the last few years, um, just collaborating with a large team of developers was not nice on uh, for web, and um, and I don't I don't know to what extent that's changed. I mean, I, I, certainly the largest apps, the largest, yeah, the largest apps are bigger than the largest mobile websites. I, mean, I think. That's probably larger, obviously larger true. in what respect? So the, the 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 bundle of code that ends up on the user's device for the Facebook app has to be definitely larger than the website that gets delivered. Maybe I mean maybe that's wrong, but it no no it, it sounds to me like that that's that's kind of reasonable. And I ju I think that's sort of a symptom of us not having been able to scale development for. Um, for the you know development for the web in, on on two axes, one is kind of how much stuff we can deliver, which is obviously limited by bandwidth and and um, um, well, essentially bandwidth network the network. Um, it would just be stupid to deliver a, a massive um, massive file, but also but the languages and sorry to interrupt. Like well, do you think that people that are advocating for web development on mobile apps are trying to deliver those all that code and and well, and assets I mean, through the network, or or they they, they want to bundle it. Pascal, like um, so my my opinion is that they compete for different experiences. If you want to show someone an article, and 
app is a terrible medium for this. If you want to create a multimedia app, a video editor, something that leverages the newest APIs, so for example, watches or any accessories that are no APIs on the web platform at the moment to do this, for those you have to use a native application. Um, then there's this second element. If it comes to scrolling performance, um, working well on older devices in particular, then as well, the web isn't really the, the best target there. Um, I don't I don't really know where you draw the line, but um, at least not in theory, but in practice, when I look at a specification or an idea for an app, to me, it normally seems quite obvious what the right choice would be, whether it's a native app or web app or maybe just a downsized companion app that is web-based, whereas the, the majority of the code lives in a web app, uh, mm. sorry, in a native app. Mm. So like, like Facebook does it, the mobile app that they have is actually excellent and provides you access to most of the features, apart from um, maybe photo editors being able to put stickers on someone's faces. And, and Can you like guys that. find any example of an, an app you, you usually use that you say, oh, this should be totally be an app, uh, sorry, a website? I mean, I'm asking you because you said like I can usually see it straight away. Have you, have you been in the case where you say, "Oh, I just see a bunch of really bloody annoying pop-ups that tell me to install an app just to read an article." Yeah, and I'm just no. <laughs> this okay. is not going to happen. I just yeah. want them to go away. And Google has taken a stance there, is um, downranking them in the search results if they do something like this, which is both scary in in that Google now is taking the position of like the internet police. But in that particular case, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, that particular sentiment. So I think this is this is the case. Anywhere where it's a really short interaction where I don't want to maintain a long-term relationship with that company or that, that community, I don't want to go through that additional step of having to install an app. But if it's a social network where I want to uh, keep informed, yeah about the latest stuff, then I think an app works really well. Yeah. I was thinking, when you mentioned that, I said, actually, I've been in that situation quite recently. Um, Pascal, you and I used Tract, T-R-A-K-T, dot TV, for tracking TV shows and movies. And um, if you actually search for apps that integrate with that, they've got a really nice API. There are plenty of them, but I usually, in the end, I always uninstall them and just use the, the mobile web because, like you said, the, the, the interaction are quite short and quite far in between. And for that, I just, you know, when I want to mark a movie or a show that or check some info about one of those, I just launch Safari and, and load, the, load the web. And I don't have to have the downsides of, of having an app for that. So th there seem to be a few showstoppers if you want to design an app and have to decide between whether a website is good enough or if you have to create an app. Those are still, I think, scrolling performance. It's still in prohibitively difficult to get something like a newsfeed um, with decent performance on web. And then it's access to advanced APIs, whether it's sensors, which are still not um, uniformly supported, and as I said, Bluetooth. I think there are some drafts for this, and also offline. There's been a lot of work, and maybe Tom, you can talk a bit about Service Worker and uh, what the current state of that is, but it still feels that it's way easier to get this done with um, a native application, which by design, you have to install on your device first. Yeah, well, um, I mean, just aside from the, the, the specifics of offline on, on web, it is 
in almost every case that I can think of true that it is easier to do it in native than it is to do it on um, on the web. And I mean easier in the sense of, well, in, in, in many senses. You, to get performance on um, a native app, you are using APIs, layout APIs that know what they're being used for. They're being used for complicated pieces of interface. They, they like that you you get things like the scroll complex scroll handling. You get um, node like I don't know what the equivalent is, but node reuse, um, all that kind of stuff for free on the web. In every case, you have to re-implement it yourself, and that means people don't implement it. Um, in terms of getting the, your content to your users, um, you, there isn't an app store to deliver it from. There is no. The thing about installing an app is you press install and there's an expectation of a download period, and you can go do other things. Websites, you load them and people, you know, there's, it's it's pretty synchronous. People expect that right there, um, in front of them, the thing will just materialize. And so, just in, t in terms of initial delivery of your app, you can't rely on a four megabyte or ten megabyte or however big all these you know larger apps are. You can't rely on that being delivered. So we have the immediate complication that we have to be able to um, create a small deliverable and then asynchronously load other content over time. Um, and so I, I, I think just for many reasons that limits the, the scope of the complexity of a, of a mobile web app, you know, in terms of the number of pe people you can have working on it um, and just the complexity of, um, complexity of features. Specifically offline, um, the, it's just sim simply the case that there isn't a um, suitable technology for um, ensuring that, that a complicated mobile web application will work without a network connection at the moment. Uh, th they're, um, at least not that's widely available um, uh, for you to use or to, to expect to be there. You know, that service worker exists, app cache exists, they are usable in some, for some set of um, devices and app cache is usable for some set of use cases, but they are not widely available um, or supported yet. And that just means that if you want to, uh, to be able to deliver your app to a whole wide range of devices, offline is not something you can do um, very well right now. There are people doing it, but the, the, the whole, the fact that we even asked that question, like are people doing it, is it possible, kind of shows that it's still not just obvious. Whereas obviously I can make a, an app work without any network connection. Um, when that's obvious, then then you know once that's obvious for the mobile web, then maybe we can move on to a new question. But I think for now, mobile web just is uh, is forever going to be able to support the baseline of features, but we'll, we'll, I don't think we'll ever be a competitor to native for the really complicated um, media intensive apps that you find on phones. It seems like the web will always have to play catch up. This may or may not be a massive issue as it seems like the replacement cycles are slowing down for phones so so that means especially for android people will be stuck on older versions of android that also can't leverage the newest features but there's one particular issue that is still missing from the web and that seems to be underemphasized in the in the debate and that is multi-threading there are still no actual efforts um, to make this work there are web workers you can spin off that you can only communicate with via strings which are still incredibly slow um, and you, you can't even asynchronously deserialize a larger blob of JSON which means at the moment if you received something like the home timeline for a Twitter stream you would inevitably 
drop a few frames if you try to deserialize those. And I don't know, are, are you aware of any ongoing efforts there to to work on that? Um, I I am loosely aware, I think, of some of efforts at Mozilla to work on this. Um, and, and the other thing is sort of specifically saying multi-threading. Um, I mean, I don't know whether we want or will ever have, I don't think I want, threads in in JavaScript, but... Would it be more like concurrency? Concurrency is, yeah, yeah exactly. Now, there are, I, I, um, I haven't explored it enough to, to really know whether um, it's viable right now. I'm quite interested in exactly the problem you talk about, which is can we offload that heavy lifting of, the, of, a, of a timeline somewhere um, away from the, the UI? And then, um, uh, and then only feed the data that's actually needed back to the back to the page. And you know, uh, like a, a web worker may be quite a good way to do that. Um, uh, if you you know, if you can say keep those strings that are being serialized and deserialized very very small, um, then you I suppose you're less likely to drop a frame and you just load as much as you can in a frame and then wait till the next one. Sure. Um, that might be a, a way to do it, and there's something to look at. So that say your service worker, da- you know, does the um, download from your API, uh, and then hands that off to say another worker, or in its in itself deserializes, and then ha- has another you know another sort of network API that feeds much less data through to the through to the application. Um, that might be something that's possible. And I know that, for example, Angular two is working on offloading some of the rendering work to Web Worker. That seems to be paying off in that case. But um, just to clarify, I deliberately picked the term multi-threading because the answer there is pretty much no for JavaScript because the single-threaded nature of JavaScript is just so baked into the semantics that you can't really change that. And sure, you could think of some higher-level abstractions that give you access to concurrency, but um, all of this feels like a lot of work on what is still an embedded device. And that was something that bugged me when I looked at um, Firefox OS right from the start. They put a lot of um, additional work uh, on low-power devices just to make basic applications work and completely ignoring the fact that those are always underpowered devices and you have to be really careful with your resource use. And if you don't have access to something low-level like threads and drawing APIs, OpenGL, I mean, you do have Web, WebGL and there was fame, fame.us and all those efforts, but um, they didn't really end in anywhere. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if the web will ever be completely competitive unless we make a major jump in com- computational power on those <laughs> embedded devices again. Um, yeah, m- maybe that doesn't make much sense. We will always see um, incremental improvements there. But if we want to go back to older devices, it, it seems questionable whether we will we will get there. Yeah. Okay, we are already running low on time, unfortunately. So thanks so much, Tom, for coming on the show and talking to us about native versus web. Thank you for having me. 